0: Legends in the racing media don't come much bigger than Max Presnell. In a career spanning almost 60 years, he's covered some of the greatest horses and the biggest stories in the history of racing. Hi, Max. Well, good
1: afternoon to you, Adam.
0: There's so much to talk about, but I want to bounce the ball straight away by saying, where did the love affair start? Who was the first horse that you really fell in love with?
1: Well, I really fell in love with racing. I, I was fortunate enough to grow up uh, in the Doncaster Hotel, which was alongside Ranwick Racecourse. My father was the publican there. And the sweetest sound I've ever heard was the clippity clop of horses going to the track. And in those days, there were hundreds of horses around Doncaster Avenue, and it was just a, it was a, a wonderful sound. And I, I still hear it now. Every time I get down, I i recollect it. But even around that stage, I would have been, oh, fifteen 15 or 16. We had a horse called Todman. And where I was connected with Todman, the Doncaster was owned by Stanley Wooten, who was a great racing man, and he owned Todman. And of course, Todman was always the talk of, of the pub and of racing. But when I saw Todman, I saw something special. And he stimulated this special feeling of being in the company of a, of a, of a great horse, of something wonderful. And it's difficult to describe, but it's what I put down to a champion. Look, champion, look, the word sprays around now constantly. But I think champion is, is a personal thing. It gives you that feeling. And Todman was the first horse to give me that and still does.
0: And there was a, a champion who was beaten in the 1961 Sydney Cup and you've got a remarkable story about that, a story that changed the course of your life at the time.
1: Yes, uh, I was about 21 at the time and I'd, I'd taken a, a double, fine and dandy in the first leg, the Doncaster, and Sharpley in the Sydney Cup. Now, Sharpley had to beat Tulloch and that was the gamble, but Sharpley didn't have much weight. Tulloch was a champion, ridden by George Moore. The first leg got in, fine and dandy. The circumstances with fine and dandy was that Tommy Hill, a top jockey, was going to ride fine and dandy, and uh, he, he was ill, and there was, he was, was substituted uh, by Keith Smith, I think it was, an apprentice. Uh, fine and dandy went to the front, and with Hill in front gauging the pace, I'm sure the opposition would have paid him more respect. With Keith Smith, a kid, I think they said, oh, this, this horse will stop shortly, We didn't, he won. So that was the first leg of my double. The second leg was Sharpley, a lightweight on the rise, Bernie Howlett rode it, uh, against a champion, Tullock. Well, Tullock gave you that feeling. With Rimmel inch by inch, it's Tullock coming at 100 miles an hour, but Sharpley in front with a half so long left to run. Tullock is feeling his weight under the... Sharpley went to the front early in the straight, coming up the rise, I can see them now. And uh, Tullock was closing in quick at the finish, but subsequently George Moore said that that was possibly the worst ride of his career on Tulloch. Uh, Again, circumstances played a role. I collected a thousand quid, which was a fair bit of money at the time. It was a goldmine to a 21-year-old who was headed to the UK. Uh, At that stage, I thought I, I had the potential to be the world's greatest punter. With a bit of ammunition, I was going to go to the UK and I was going to have great success. Of course, Scobie Breesley was riding there then, Ron Hutchison. Australians were the flavour of, of the UK. And I thought, well, this is going to be easy. One of my greatest lessons over there was to starve with some sort of dignity. Um, I, I also was very fortunate enough to work in the media over there, newspapers and Reuters over there, and uh, I survived it. I come back a wiser, uh, much wiser experience, and I did learn a lesson over there that I certainly wasn't the world's greatest punter. And uh, look, I've never got near it since I come back either.
0: And when you, you told us about how you got the love for racing and you had that time overseas, but when you came back and your career really started to flourish back here, that was at a time a little bit before you and certainly during your career when racing riders were huge. They were, they were gods in the sport in a lot of ways, some of the biggest riders.
1: The popularity of racing is, 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 is Australian. But, uh, you know, racing has always played a major role in Australia. And when you went to the UK, like it was more, it was the sport of the silver tails, of the gentry, the kings, the sport of kings. Here, it's always been the sport of the people. The people were involved in it. It's uh, something that has been carried on. I think it's still there, mind you, but it's presented in a different, uh, different format, different way.
0: So some of the great racing riders of your time, and even before you, uh, we were chatting off camera about uh, Banjo Patterson being a racing well, rider. Well, Banjo
1: Patterson was a racing rider, and an editor uh, once referred to me as an old-time racing rider. I don't think he was giving me a rap, actually, but like, I, I revelled in it. I said, Banjo Patterson was a racing writer. Yeah, Banjo <laughs> Patterson, like you might... It was a, was many, many things. He was a foreign correspondent, he was a poet, he was a writer. He was one of the great Australians, but at the end of his career and throughout his career, he wrote about racing and he was a racing writer. He was the editor of The Sportsman in, in Sydney, which, you know, it, it was a racing paper. That was Banjo Patterson. But, look, I've been very fortunate to, to have read and to work with some great men, great racing riders.
0: Almost 60 years for you at Fairfax in one place. In today's world, that's unthinkable.
1: Well, I hold the record. I say for, for an employee at John Fairfax, I hold it, which doesn't necessarily mean to say it was right. But I, I kicked off very young. I was 15 when I started and uh, I had a break three years in the UK. I come back in 64 and I've contributed to Sydney... Well, I started on the Sydney Sun, which was the afternoon paper, and what a great paper it was too, and I went right through to the end of when Channel 9 took over, and I'm still, still writing a column for the Sydney Morning Herald.
0: And still enjoying the writing as much now? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah.
1: Look, racing and writing and newspapers never been a job to me. It's been a passion. It's been, yes, it's something... I've never, I don't feel I've worked a day in my life. Of course, people have been around me and say, that's right, that's 100% right, You you never have. But no, racing, newspapers, no, it's, I've been very, very fortunate.
0: There must have been some incredible stories you covered along the way, and one of the biggest, one of the most dramatic was back in 1961 in the AJC Derby, and it's remembered not for the Derby, but for the Mel Shoemaker leg pulling incident. Tell us, Tell us about how you remember that day.
1: Well, it kicked off, I backed a horse called Blue Era in the Derby, ridden by Mel Shoemaker. And it was a wonderful race. They went down, to, they were locked together. Blue Era and uh, Summer Fair, Leo O'Sullivan. They went locked together. And, of course, the numbers went up and, yeah, you know, Blue Era got it. And I said, you little beauty. Well, that, it was the AJC Derby. It was a sensational race, but, but then... Uh, Shortly after the jockeys come back, the protest siren went up. Well, well what's happened here? But well, you've got no worries. They don't uphold protests in Derby's, you know. <laughs> and uh, in that era, I was, um, one of my my job was to cover the stewards and there were open stewards inquiries. Right. And we thought, well, what's going to come up here? And Tommy Hill, who, Tommy Hill, the bloke that got crook on fine and dandy, got in and they said, you're lodging a protest and what's that? And he said, well, uh, Mel Shoemaker grabbed my leg and... And you could see the stewards and everybody in the room, they were just, they couldn't get a grip, and he's grabbing, what is he talking about? And uh, Jack Burke, who's the chief steward, he said, now, uh, Hill, are you sure he grabbed your leg? He said, Mr. Burke, he said, I'd know if a snake bit me. (laughs) And so it went on, and then they said to the shoe, they said, "And what about you, shoemaker? What have you got to say? He said, I'm flabbergasted. (laughs) That's preposterous. They were words that, uh, you know, really, it's. Uh, when I was dictating later and I had to spell them, gave me some difficulty. <laughs> but uh, that that was it. And then they showed the film. And the side-on film showed a little bit of bumping. It was a black and white film and a bit of this and a bit of that, but, but nothing conclusive. And then the head-on. Well, the head-on did show Mel Shoemaker leaning over and attaching himself to a part of Tommy Hill's leg and it's the most incredible piece of horsemanship I've ever ever seen because not only and every time a car drives past me 45 miles an hour I think of the shoe leaning across grabbing the other riders leg and actually impeding his progress because a couple of strides before the post, the shoes dropped the leg and went whack, whack, whack and got up right on the line. And you you just, I just marvel at it. And uh, I don't know if they hadn't have had that head-on view, shoe might've got away with it. It was infamy, desperation. But look, that's how racing once was. Adam, they would go to extremes. Jockeys, trainers would go to extremes to win races and to lose races. Now, fortunately, that's gone. That's gone. It's, you know, videotapes have come in, seeing eyes have come in. But that was racing. If he was that underbelly. There'll always be an underbelly. But it was certainly more prevalent in that era and going for another 20, 25 years. Many things come up then that would emphasise just how desperate people were to win races and lose them.
0: Well, I was going to say, to flow on to another of those where-were-you-when moments in racing, um, the fine cotton ring-in scandal, which no doubt you covered extensively as well. Yes,
1: well, I was at uh, Warwick Farm that day and uh, my first recollection of it was um, Mark Reed, the bookmaker. He was chanting, this is a ring What are they doing with this? This is a race in Brisbane coming up. Then, of course, the, the horse manure, the race has been run and the horse manure has hit the fan.
0: Spiance is starting to pick him up now. Harbour gold, get up the fine cotton with 100 to go and they'll fight it out. Fine cotton won't give in. Harbour gold, fine cotton. Fine cotton's going to hold on, I
1: think. Oh, he's just in front. Oh, he may have won by a nose. There's nothing in it. Fine cotton, maybe a nose to harbour gold in almost the dead heat. If this has one
0: fine cotton, the bookmakers won't be able to pay.
1: I for about three or four people like making inquiries about the Reed outburst and everything. People said, "Well, well, this is yes, this ain't fine cotton." Has rushed to the official enclosure fence within seconds of the photo, screaming for an immediate inquiry. Fine Cotton, owned by Miss Pauline Pierce and Malcolm McGregor Lowndes, was backed heavily on major race tracks in Sydney and Melbourne. Stewart sent for the horse's identification papers minutes after the race, but they could not be found. It was a real joke, it was a real Cats and Jammer kids' buddy cartoon incident. One faster horse has been <laughs> substituted for a slower horse. Yeah. To think that they could anticipate getting away with it, if you read about it which I'm not going to elaborate here because there are, it's going it's to get, still we'll always be getting plenty of airplay, but to get away with it, it was just hilarious. Dying horses and so forth. But then the underbelly the, the, the real wrench was George Brown. Now, George Brown, I'm not going to say he was my best mate, but I knew him. He was a Ranwick trainer. He was on that sort of battling trainer spectrum. And George Brown was supposedly going to be involved in a ring-in Brisbane. And look, the mail is that Fine Cotton was hardly the first. And George... Had reneged, and George ended up being murdered in the most horrific circumstances. And I'm, I'm not going to go into, into that either. That's, but um, that's that's the underbelly. When when you talk about fine cotton, and you laugh, and it always like George Brown comes back to me, and I don't laugh.
0: Some of the great moments, and I don't even know where to start, and we can't cover. Uh, anywhere near all of the magical moments for you, but um, but you and I have talked about that moment Vane turned up from Victoria and owned that golden slipper in 1969.
1: Yeah, well, special girl, she was the Sydney horse, and Vane, whom I was fortunate to see in Melbourne and, and should have recognised that wow factor about Vane. Vane was just an incredible racehorse. And I do know that coming out of the barrier, special girl injured a knee. It wouldn't have mattered. She, she wouldn't have beaten Vane with a tow truck. But Vane was a special horse. And history will show that Vane, in his next race, was beaten the sire's project Beau Babylon, I think it was. Beau
0: Babylon, stopping Vane. Stopping quickly. Bo Babylon is coming at it now. Bain is walking to the line. Bo Babylon swamps it near the post and it's got up the win. Oh, there's a shock. Bo Babylon got up to beat Bain, which, I'm not kidding, it
1: walked the last 50 yards. In those days, Adam, champions could get beaten. Didn't take the luster off. Mate, they didn't have the, shall we say, the, the race, the choice of races that they get today. They had to run outside their comfort zone and... uh and Vane had been beaten on a couple of occasions, but he was—he was a great horse. I'm not going to say he really gave me that—that that buzz, uh, but he was a great horse, and he's one of those horses that, you know, that I say, well, why why wouldn't he be a champion? If you want to have a hundred champions, you want Vane there. Geez, you could do a lot worse.
0: A horse who did give you the buzz was Superimpose, who made Randwick his own for those few years in a row.
1: No, nah, he didn't give me the buzz either. That's how hard I am to please. But I do say this every time I get in this sort of conversation and I say, well, what sort of an imbecile are you? What a great horse, great horse superimposed was. And when you saw him win the Epsom with 61 kilos in your back, Darren Beedman, and you, you were there, and to see this, the mile at Randwick, and there was Beedman. Beedman said, the crowd all stood up, and applauded that horse back. And, and Biedman said they were applauding Superimpose. Won the four Randwick miles. Yes, Darren, we were applauding Superimpose, but we were applauding the jockey who could get the horse home under 61 kilos in a Doncaster. Oh, wh- what, a, what a horse, what a memory. And what an imbecile am I because I can't call him a champion.
0: <laughs> what about Maccabi Diva? Because oh. when we were talking about racing moments oh. that you'll never forget. Uh, and everyone's going to go, well, it had to be that last Melbourne Cup. But for you, it was a different race.
1: No, it was the Cox Plate. And it wasn't. I'm not going to talk about, you know, the, the merits of the win, but the vision's splendid. Pekkaibi Diva getting up behind it. Excellent is coming very wide on the outside then Tosin Dandy coming up to the 650 metre mark now. Desert War going up to Hotel Grand. Excellent God's Own very wide around the outside with Pekkaibi Diva Fields of Omar and they're all taking off at the 550 metre mark. A wall of horses around the outside. If you got to the turn at Mooney Valley and fanned across that track and there was Maccabi Deaver and Glen Boss, and she was chiming in and you said, have a look at this, this is a racehorse. Further back, Confectioner. It's Maccabi Diva, Fields of Omar and Luteria. Well, the great Mets hit the front. Maccabi Diva from Luteria. Fields of Omar fighting back. But it's Maccabi Diva in front of Luteria. Fields of Omar coming back in the middle. But Maccabi Diva, she's the champ. She wins the Cox Plate. Three-quarters Luteria. She gives me the feeling. Maccabi Diva give me the feeling. And look, the Melbourne Cup too. But but yeah, there's just something about Maccabi Look, again, she was beaten. And people argue with me, say, oh, she was beat, she, she got beaten then, she got beaten here. But she was a two-mile horse. They had to get, I reckon she could have been trained to win a mile race, a top mile race. But Lee Friedman, master trainer that he was, he set her for the two-mile race. And and look, two-mile races, and I, I know that he won two with her and, uh, you know, but he didn't win the three, but, but you know, she was just, she just give me that feeling. He just give me that feeling. and answer. And they were... Oh, Mooney Valley, the Cox Plate. You think of the great Cox Plates, and why would they want to change the Mooney Valley and the Strait? But anyway, we can take our memories with us, and certainly I'm taking MacKay Big Debra the Cox Plate memory with me.
0: And I'm taking a lot of the memories from uh, from our chat today. It's been uh, a wonderful walk down memory lane. Congratulations on what's been an incredible career. Keep up the great work with those columns, and thanks for your time, Max.
1: Adam, just a tabloid hack enjoying himself.
0: chances are you're about to lose. For free and confidential support, call the number on the screen or visit the website.